Hello and welcome to an all new episode of Close Talking. I'm your co-host, Jack Raster Munley. And I'm your other co-host, Connor McNamara Stratton. And this is the podcast where we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. And before we dive into this week's delectable selection, a quick thank you to David J. Bauman, who rated and reviewed the podcast, Braving the Wilds of iTunes, to make sure that he got in some kind words for us, for which we are incredibly thankful. And this is our no longer desperate plea, but friendly reminder that you can rate the show. Five stars is always lovely and you can write a review and those ratings and reviews are the best ways to help us bump up on the itunes algorithm a lot of people don't know this but shortly after al gore invented the internet he was like i can't keep a beat and so he invented al gore's rhythm which is now why we collectively call the mathematical equations that govern our uh interwebs the uh the algorithms that's just a little internet fact for you before we get into the poetry. And boy, have we got a good one for you. It is The Moment I Saw a Pelican Devour by Paige Lewis. Paige Lewis is an incredible poet. They have a, their first collection coming out called Space Struck, which is coming out in October of this very year from Saraband Books. They have had their poetry f- featured in Poetry, in American Poetry Review, as best new poets of 2017 and in the Massachusetts, Iowa, and Georgia review. So if it's a state and it has a review, you're more than likely to find Paige Lewis poems in that review. Um, (laughs) Their work is great. They're great. Keep an eye out for more good stuff coming from Paige Lewis. It's one of the most, uh, perhaps one of the most highly anticipated poetry collections of 2019, I would venture to say. I would. Um, just it's the speaking, debut, right? Yeah, debut collection. Speaking personally, it is one of my most anticipated collections, <laughs> debut or otherwise, of 2019. I'm very excited. I'm excited to see the full collection and sort of see how those poems um, are organized and, you know, what kind of like arc and what kind of conversations emerge um, from that. Definitely. Today's poem that we're going to talk about, as I said, is called The Moment I Saw a Pelican Devour. It came out online at 6th Finch in their summer 2016 issue. Because of how the poem is structured, I'm going to say the title, and then I'm also going to read the whole thing because the title kind of runs into the poem, sort of Emily Dickinson style. Uh, I mean, that <laughs> that wasn't an intentional thing on Emily's part, whereas it is here on, on pages. So The Moment I Saw a Pelican Devour by Paige Lewis. The moment I saw Pelican devour a seagull, wings swallowing wings, I learned that a miracle is anything that God forgot to forbid. So when you tell me that saints are splintered into bone bits smaller than the freckles on your wrist, and that each speck is sold to the rich, I know to marvel at this, and not the fact that these same saints are still wholly intact and fresh faced in their plexiglass tomb displays. We wholly our own fragments when we can. Trepanation patients wear their skull spirals as amulets. Mothers frame the dried foreskin of their firstborn. And I've seen you swirl my name on your tongue like a thirst pebble. Still, I try to hold on to nothing for fear of being crushed by what can be taken, because sometimes, Not even our mouths belong to us. Listen, 
In the early 1920s, women were paid to paint radium onto watch dials so that men wouldn't have to ask the time in dark alleys. They were told it was safe, told to lick their brushes into sharp points. These women painted their nails, their faces, and judged whose skin shined brightest. They coated their teeth so their boyfriends could see their bites with the lights turned down. The miracle here is not that these women swallowed light. It's that when their skin dissolved and their jaws fell off, the Radium Corporation claimed they all died from syphilis. It's that you're more interested in telling me about the dull slivers of dead saints, while these women's bones are glowing beneath our feet. Wow. Yeah. That's such a good one. It is a doozy from start to finish. So before we get into it, as is tradition, our quick sort of narrative summation of the poem, it begins with this observation of seeing a pelican eating a seagull, which is something that pelicans do. They'll eat other birds sometimes in their big old floppy bills. They'll get them in there. You can find videos on the internet with weird titles where pelicans are doing this. Wow. And then you get this definition of a miracle that kind of overhangs the entire poem, which is a miracle is anything that God forgot to forbid. It's not what God allows. It's what God forgot to tell you not to do. Uh, and then you have this discussion of saints and the fact that fragments of saints are often sold because they're considered good luck. The traditional iteration of that is like knuckle bones in a pouch that somebody might carry with them. But there are any number of like saint garments or saint body parts that are sold, very small ones that people buy for a lot of money in hopes of being a little closer to holiness, I guess. And then there's this middle section that kind of kicks off with we holy our own fragments, which talks about how we try to keep pieces of holiness close to ourselves. Um, trepanation was the practice of cutting holes in the skull. It was actually a medical procedure or considered in air quotes, a medical procedure. Uh, there is no benefit medically to doing this. And so the practice of keeping pieces of your own body or of the bodies of loved ones and then it gets into this historical reference point that becomes the whole almost second half of the poem beginning with listen in the early 1920s. And this is a real historical reference point. There were women who worked at the Radium Corporation who were being paid to do this and who were ingesting large amounts of radium, becoming very sick. And in fact, these women eventually filed lawsuits and set a lot of precedents through those lawsuits um, starting in 1928 and concluding around 1939. So 11 years, and most of them were already so sick at the beginning that there's accounts of them being unable to raise their hands to swear in at court to give testimony and all kinds of stuff. But they set a lot of precedents around labor laws and uh, around workplace just safety standards. Um, but in doing so, they were regularly told that they were either imagining their illnesses or their illnesses weren't a result of the work that they were doing to the point that fake studies were commissioned and put out by the Radium Corporation and all this kind of stuff. And then the poem ends by drawing this connection between the saints that are discussed in the first half of the poem and the women in the second half saying, what is the miracle here? And it says, it's that you're more interested in telling me about the dull slivers of dead saints while these women's bones are glowing beneath our feet. So what are we considering holy? 
versus what we should be considering holy, what is given value versus what should be given value, uh, and a whole lot else going on. But the that's kind of the overview of the poem. The one fact that I learned that's so intense about radium is that it like breaks down the calcium in your bones. So that's like uh, jaws, people's jaws became so brittle because of the radium that doctors were just like, well, we might as well just remove your jaw because that's the best course of action. I mean, it's truly horrific. Yeah, something that's just really wild to think about um, is that these women often didn't really know they had radium poisoning or how badly it had affected them until on some occasions they saw themselves in the mirror at night and could see their bones glowing through their skin. What? How wild is that? Uh. What would you do if you walked up and you were like, oh, cool shin. Like, where'd that, where'd that come from? What? <laughs> like, Oh my God. The whole thing is so horrific. Um, there was even, uh, in, in Illinois, there was this company called Radium Dial uh, that actually went around messing with autopsies of these women and stealing their bones to try and hide evidence when they were being sued. Uh, for a full history wow. of this stuff, there's a book called Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women that came out in 2017, written by Kate Moore, who also wrote a play about this subject called These Shining Lies, which came out in 2015. I highly recommend looking into those to learn more about the history of these women because, and this gets into a lot of what the poem talks about, but they fall into this category of women who basically gave their lives so that we could get laws to protect all people who work in anything now. Um, this is kind of a continuation of like in, 1911 famously was the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, um, which killed 146 people in total, but they were garment workers. So 123 of them were women and 23 of them were men. And over and over again, like the laws that we put in place to protect people in the workplace have been disproportionately because of tragedies that occurred to women, minorities, or children, usually some vulnerable population that was being put in danger because society had decided they were disposable in some fashion which is not great but is some of what i feel like this poem is is getting at this poem is so good it's like there's so much going on in it that it's like to know where to kind of first uh get going one thing that was really striking to me and this kind of gets at sort of how the poem goes about you know making its particular critique or um it's you know not necessarily that the poem has to say something, but um, it is making a kind of critique. And, and I think you articulated that it's highlighting the erasure and the violence done to women in, um, in sort of, you know, I think also specifically like capitalist profit. Um, it seemed notable that the poem, you know, mentions the Radium Corporation specifically, and the fact that the slivers in the beginning are kind of like valuable monetarily or whatever, and sort of bringing that into tension with our, um, you know, our worship of, of, saint, of saints. And the one, there's a lot to say about this um, that you've already started getting into. The one part that interested me 
initially was the way that the U was working. Um, you know, it's a kind of address to this person and they're having this kind of conversation. Um, you know, the very first stanza, it begins so spectacularly with this like amazing um, image of a pelican eating a seagull and that phrase wings swallowing wings which is just amazing but then the very end of that stanza is so when you tell me that saints and then it goes into the next stanza are splintered into bone bits um so it becomes very clear to me that the you is kind of a central part of this poem um and it's interesting you know in some ways, the you represents like it's sort of a, a stand in for what's wrong about how we're thinking about women or the patriarchy or the past or violence. Um, but it's it's interesting because it the you comes in, I think, three times um, once at the beginning, which is we sort of get a hint of maybe there's a criticism here. It's like when you tell me that it's like there's a sense in the way that that's phrased that's like all right i don't really like what the you is going to tell me kind of thing um but then the next appearance of the you is this sort of list of things that we uh of fragments that we wholly um you know along uh you know the trepanation patients and the skull spirals and um the mothers in the dried foreskin and then it's, and I've seen you swirl my name on your tongue like a thirst pebble. I mean, that is very enigmatic to me. Um, but it's also a moment of tenderness um, and sort of shows that the you um, really values the speaker of the poem. And, you know, but also it's interesting because the speaker is sort of like grouping uh, themselves like, in as a fragment, you know, um, in some kind of way that's being holied. Um, but at any rate, it's like really bringing the speaker and the you close together there, I think. Um, but then finally, the last stanza, it's what the miracle is and, and sort of the full weight of the accusation kind of like emerges. Um, you know, it's that you're more interested in telling me about the dull slivers of dead saints, um, you know, while these women's bones are glowing beneath our feet. In terms of like, you know, just how the poem is structured, I just found it both very cool, but also very interesting. Anyway, um, there's this interesting- I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, yeah, I, I am very curious about that. And I wondered about it as I was reading, because I think there's also a soft accusation where it doesn't say you, but the listen. In the early 1920s, that feels like I need your attention. This is something you might not pay as much attention to unless I specifically tell you to kind of moment. And that adds to exactly what you are pulling out, which is that there's this almost equal parts intimacy and accusation whenever the you comes up. And it does create a very specific kind of feeling in the poem. And I think that kind of intimacy accusation line could be read as the you, as you were saying, is like capitalism generally. Because when we're looking at the poem, the way that these saints are being worshipped or given value is through the monetary exchange of their bodies. 
And then the way that the women are being devalued is by having them completely shunted away. And in fact, these are women who challenged capitalist structures. There is this intimacy and accusation that any person who is critical of capitalism is going to have because you live in it. You are surrounded by it at all times. It is the economic system that governs in most countries, governs your existence, and kind of anywhere in the world, you are by default existing in a world where the major economic powers are capitalist nations. It's hard to escape from the effects of capitalism. You are intimately entangled with it, however critical you are of it. And so there is this intimate critique going on. So I, I feel that a little bit, but it also does feel like this deeply personal relationship is being described because it is it does feel one-on-one to some degree, because you are bringing up this specific response to an implicit argument that's being made on the part of the the you, where it says, so when you tell me that saints are splintered, this you is telling you about something specific. Again, could be the big metaphorical capitalist you, or I think it feels just as right to read it and feel it as a more intimate exchange between two people. And it's also like you were talking about this, like capitalism. And then also one thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, religion is also like a huge part of this. Obviously, we're talking about saints. We're talking about miracles. Um, but there seems to be a huge religious critique in the poem, too. From the get go, we have that great line. I mean, it's just like such a like a zinger. Um, but I learned that a miracle is anything that God forgot to forbid. That's at once like lovely to think about just like, um, like, oh, yeah, like God just like was absent minded. And isn't that marvelous? But it's also like, God's like, really, you know, underwhelming and like, just sort of dilly dallying. I mean, <laughs> the beauty of I guess, maybe miracles, they actually have, the miracle itself, by the end of the poem, has a kind of complicated and even violent it's not all nice sometimes i think about a miracle i think wow that's so amazing but by the end the miracle is quite complicated um but regardless it's something that's happening because god was not involved um which i think is really interesting yeah yes 100%. I'm fascinated by that line and the way, to me at least, it hung over the entire poem as I was reading it and I kept returning back to it and referring back to it because that realization is born out of violence that I think intuitively feels unnatural, which is a bird eating another whole bird. And it looks weird when you see pelicans eating other birds because it's like, what? Wings swallowing wings. This is not how it's meant to be. This is an aberration. It has to me at least, an almost legalistic undertone because a lot of how we think about like sleazier applications of the law is sort of seeing what you can get away with. But when you think about what do we mean when we say miracle, it's like fishes and loaves, replication beyond what is natural. It's breaking the natural law. It's what God forgot to forbid in like a worldly miracle sense. It's these natural occurrences that seem like they shouldn't be able to happen. And we get a violent example of that as what kind of kicks off this realization. And then we get other examples of it. So God forgot to forbid the commodification of saints. And the same way that laws forgot to forbid companies from letting women 
lick their radium soaked brushes, we get this tie back to what is a miracle. And in fact, in the poem, what would be categorized as miraculous is almost always deadly. Yeah, this is too simplistic, but it's like God forgot to forbid like patriarchy or something. Um, like it's like the fact that the first sort of miracle or not the first sort of miracle, but the first miracle of the two part miracles at the very end of the poem, um, because there's kind of like a wind up that the speaker does. That's like, what's the miracle here? You know, after I've talked about the radium corporation, you know, it's not that the women swallowed light, which is, you know, what would one naturally think of as a miracle? I mean, that's like, yeah. Um, and I love that it that that sort of spectacle, that image, is sort of thrown away um, in a kind of way. But it's it's the first one. It's that the Radium Corporation claimed they all died from syphilis. You know, it's this. Um, it's the way that not just that the the corporation, you know, put these women's lives, you know, in fatal, like, killed them, um, and then covered up the killing. It's that they used sort of like patriarchal tropes and norms to excuse their behavior. It's like, oh well, if the women were promiscuous and got like syphilis, then they deserve to die. Or like, um, like not only was it not the corporation's fault, but we shouldn't even be mourning these women. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's fascinating. Um, like the sort of, like the, in, in a way there's, and maybe this is too, maybe we're talking about it too, like, in big, almost like structural terms, but a lot of how I start to access the poem is like, there's all these oppressive things. It's like, there's patriarchy, there's like religion, there's capitalism. Uh, um, and the speaker is kind of like, and they're all tangled up like with each other in this way. Um, and the speaker is sort of like slowly working poem to like untangle them um and to un expose them sort of for what they are you know what the image that we're left with at the very end is that these women's bones are glowing you know beneath our feet you know the use of the present tense there feels like particularly important it's like obviously the bones are long you know from the 20s they're long whatever decomposed and back to the earth um but the speaker is very insistent that these bones are still here you know the past is haunting the present kind of thing um yeah and i just it's yeah i love it i don't know <laughs> yeah i love it as well you gave me two thoughts which when you mentioned that the it's not that these women swallowed light that image is tossed away that's like in most poems, that would be the cool image. And in general, miraculous terms, like a glowing person is often what we associate with saints and miracles or somebody backlit and shining their radiant saintly light on people. But in fact, this light is the insidious part and that gets tossed away. And we learn that the real miracle is that the corporations knew what they could get away with. So 
the fact of the glowing is not only sinister, it's also not miraculous. Because, I mean, if you want to get down to like a tying in nature and science to God kind of level, you could say, well, radium is an element. It's something that was created by a creator God. It's part of Earth. It's natural. The fact that these women happened to ingest something natural, that's not out of the ordinary. That could happen. We, through science, have figured out how to concentrate radium. Incidentally, Marie Curie, who won two Nobel Prizes, is the one who discovered radium and also got radium poisoning and died from exposure to radiation. Uh, and because of her scientific work with it. So it's not like we were totally ignorant to the fact that it might not be great for you um, by the time this came along. So even when the corporations were telling people it was safe, it wasn't. Um, but anyway. Ah, I wonder the, when corporations are telling people that things are safe when they know that they're not. That's oh, crazy. I mean, be, Could it be I the mean, cigarette it, companies in the late 90s and the early 2000s? Could it be? Or the oil industry? <laughs> As well, the oil industry with, for uh, all time, the, for all time, but specifically beginning in the what seventies when they were really hardcore lying about climate change, yeah. uh, even up until now. But yeah, and, and it's the same exact techniques are being used. It's the same funded studies from these industries that are USRC, the Radium Corporation, commissioned studies to say that radium wasn't harmful, even when all of the other studies were saying it was, and the dying bodies in front of them said that it was. The point being, that's what's being identified as miraculous and in fact the way that this poem defines miracles it's sort of something unnatural which i think when you think about miracles they are there's like a creepy edge to miracles which is maybe best exemplified by the way that Zack snyder shows superman in batman v superman dawn of justice one of the worst movies ever made um but he like manages to make the fact of a superman very creepy which yes the point of the Superman character is that he's better than people in every respect, including his goodness. But if you take away that a little bit and you just look at the facts of like this alien who's incredibly strong, can fly, can shoot lasers out of his eyes, that becomes something very threatening when you just look at the elements of it. And so when you look at the elements of miracles, they can become creepy. And I think that is something that the poem also draws out. And then you were talking about at the very end, this buried image of the bones, which is striking and it's a different subject matter like very different but it made me think of i work at a law firm here in new york uh, and we have the laws of the state of new york going all the way back to the earliest ones that were written when new york was first becoming a state uh, and in those law books there are provisions about slavery and about the different legal protections offered to people based on their skin color and our present laws don't tell that story, but those books are there and they have it there. And you can, if you've gone back as I have and looked at those books, there are times when I'm sitting at my desk and I can feel that fact down the hall from where I work every day, because those are the books that were the laws of the land not that long ago. And I think you can feel if you, are looking for it and you are trying to be aware of those things, you can feel their presence, however buried or hidden they are. And that was a moment of pretty intense resonance for me on this poem. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And it makes me think of the kind of classic distinction between like history and the past. 
um, insofar as history is this sort of written um, and like, you know, curated version and story we tell about the past, uh, whereas the past is actually just whatever, you know, has happened. Um, and in some ways, the saints of the poem are, you know, like history's embodiment of what they think is good or something, um, or what they think is worth thinking about or being mindful of or um, worshiping or whatever. Um, and, you know, they, they are given the attention because history um, is written such that, you know, that's who is emphasized. Um, and these women who died in this, this gruesome way, but also like, you know, fought for uh, some kind of justice and achieved serious results from that um, are, you know, not part of the standard written history. Um, and so it does seem like, you know, part of this poem is is a kind of a trying to rewrite or write against um, the the sort of dominant narratives of the past. Totally. Um, one part that I love, which I feel like there's a few zingers. I just love we wholly our own fragments when we can. So striking. Um, it uses wholly as a transitive verb so like a verb that has a direct object so it's kind of an unusual way to say holy like you could say we make our fragments holy when we can right but it's like we holy our fragments or um, like just, we hold our holy fragments or something would be another yeah. way to do it because it's talking about it transitions into like physical objects that are bodily but that could be it says so much in a in a very compact statement and also has a kind of counterpoint to what is a lot of the sort of argument of the poem that is like you know we as you know human agents are also making things sacred the parts of our own selves sacred and that's actually you know for a little bit thought of as in the poem as like pretty tempting or something, not tempting in like a temptation way, but like, um, it's interesting that then there's this part that's like, still I try to hold on to nothing for fear of being crushed um, by what can be taken. Um, there's this, that still is like, the speaker's like, I would like to wholly my own fragments, or, you know, I would like to hold your name in my mouth like a thirst pebble but that's too risky or something for the speaker at this point. Um, but it still sort of represents this, this counterpoint of, of sacredness that comes from the person themselves and not like, you know, whatever institution has deified, you know, X saint or Y saint. Um, that's zinger number two. I love it. Here's something that makes a zinger a zinger is there's a kind of, a telling. There's a kind of saying. It's like a pronouncement. We holy our own fragments when we can. You know, a miracle is anything that God uh, forgot to forbid. They work so well because 
I think the ideas behind them are so interesting and also just because they're they're constructed and phrased so beautifully. The speaker is saying something to like about the world outside the poem, you know. I think they also have a quality, these specifically, but often when something like this happens in a poem and I feel like I'm recognizing it in the way that you're describing, it often feels like an old truth in a new way. So you kind of know what miracles are, but to hear them described this way gives you a new angle on something, but it is something that you feel like you almost already knew. Um, and, the, and the same with we holy our own fragments, like, yeah, that's right. I do do that when I read that line, but it makes me think about it in a new way because I'm hearing about patients who've had a hole drilled in their head, holding on to their pieces of skull. And in the context of the poem, it just gives it a different way of thinking about something that I almost feel like I knew. Alexander defined true wit as, quote, nature to advantage dressed what oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. Hot dog. Which I, uh, which I think is kind of getting at what you were describing. This also makes me think of when you're bringing up the skull fragments, is one thing we've often talked about in the, the podcast um, is this sort of relationship between the sacred and the profane. Um, the the classic example the classic example on the podcast um, is I's poem you know I've got to stop loving you uh, so I killed my black goat in which the speaker is muting a goat um, as a kind of ritual to cleanse herself of the profound pain of love and similarly. This poem, the details of this poem are brutal. I mean, from the get-go, it's like very savage. You know, a pelican is eating seagull. Um, like, the saints are bone bits. Um, the, the, like, yeah, the the trepanation patients have taken the part of their skull that was drilled out and they're keeping them as amulets. Mothers are keeping dried foreskin of their kids. And, you know, and then when we get to kind of the second half of the poem, these women, their jaws are falling off. You know, I mean, it's hard to get more profane or brutal or just like so bodily you know it's so bodily um in a way that makes you like that kind of shocks you into remembering how bodily it is it's like i've got a skull but i don't really think about skull that much like my own skull but then when i'm thinking about trepanation patients having a little piece of their skull, I'm like, oh my God, like, it's just a piece of bone covering my mind. Well, and it also brings to, to you exactly what it means to have a piece of skull in your hand, which is that there's a hole in your head. Yes. 
which is not a comforting yes. thought. This, yeah, this poem is constantly referring you back to bodies and making every concept bodily in some way. And it does it in some pretty visceral language. Yeah. And then it, you know, the reason it kind of does that, you know, is part a matter of craft. Um, you know, it's a way of like really evoking the senses of the reader to be like, oh, wow, like I'm, you know, I'm not just reading random thoughts on a page. I'm like really visually and sensorily, you know, like um, stimulated by by those images. And, and part of that just gets you into the poem. So it's like good craft. Um, but it also sort of, uh, the way in which um, Lewis is like drawing attention to bodies is I think in part because it has a specific sort of profound or sacred like question or idea that it's trying to express, um, which is in part like wanting like women's bodies or bodies that aren't men to like matter, you know, and to be treated in a way that, um, you know, doesn't treat them as disposable. Um, so that the speaker doesn't like have to fear that at some point their mouth might not belong to them, you know? Um, and it seems like a kind of way of, because so much attention is, is in this sort of this violent, but this violent consumption of the body, you know, devouring, eating, swallowing light, the women, there's a lot of mouths and eating and ingesting, and also just like severing, you know, jaws falling off, foreskin, skull fragments. Um, the saints are splintered. The saints are splintered. Um, that, that specific attention, I think, like, speaks to the speaker's desire for that, you know, not to happen and not just to the speaker's own self, but like for that not to happen to anyone and specifically, you know, women or non-binary people or, you know, anyone not the kind of like the cis man representation of the patriarchy or something. Definitely. Even the brushes that are more than anything, the medium by which the radium enters these women's bodies are turned into sharp points, which is a literal description of what the women are doing when they lick the brushes to make them into a point. I think most of us have done that with small paintbrushes or something, but the fact that the brush itself becomes a sharp point in this poem that, as you were saying, has so much severing, cutting, breaking going on in it. Um, even the way that the word splintered shows up is right after uh, the whole poem is in three line stanzas and it's right after that first stanza where the first break in the poem comes, it ends that saints into the next stanza are splintered. So the line itself splinters for the first time when that splinter enters, which just sets you up for how important that idea is in the rest of the poem, which is kind of neat. That is really neat. Yeah, that's a really good observation. One little part 
that makes me pause, and I think this is kind of like the last thing that I'm still thinking about, is the the line, and I've seen you swirl my name on your tongue like a fish pepper. I was also gonna ask you about that because I that I, that's the line that begins we hold well not line it is the sentence that begins we holy our own fragments and then it ends with that line about the thirst pebble yeah because it's like by itself it would come across like a pretty tender straightforwardly tender image you know it's like the you like loves the speaker and you know is like saying the speaker's name or like you know um is is treasuring it you know um but in the context of what it comes after it's very strange i mean the the name the speaker's name suddenly becomes the equivalent or the uh, uh, like yeah the equivalent of a, a piece of skull from a trepanation patient, or B, foreskin, um, you know? And furthermore, like what that suggests, not just like pairing them all together, I mean, that's, that's sort of interesting enough, but also the fact that those things are removed from the person's body and so the name in this, like, if we were to follow it, like the same logic, the speaker's name has been taken, you know, or cut off from the speaker and is now like with the you in the poem. It really is the moment of most sort of closeness as we were talking about between the speaker and the you. Um, but the image itself seems so fraught and I don't quite know what to make of it. I'm in the same boat, I think. Um, it's interesting you bring up the question of ownership and of being connected versus disconnected, because that's kind of the directions I was going in with it. And as you were noting, it seems like it should be tender, but it feels threatening to have the name in someone else's mouth. And a thirst pebble is just a technique that people use to stop feeling thirsty basically is to put a pebble in your mouth and it makes your mouth water because you have something in your mouth. As far as I know, that's what the term thirst pebble refers to. And so it's oh. not specifically medical, but it is medicine adjacent. It's like a folk remedy for if you're out and you're waiting to get to water and you want to trick yourself into not being thirsty kind of deal. So it's got this like folk wisdom medicine kind of thing going on. Which, again, because of how this poem seems to view, not necessarily medicine, but like radium at the time, some people promoted it for health benefits, similar to mercury, which they both, radium a little more drastically, I think, but mercury also would like weaken your jaw and rot your teeth and ruin your bones. And there's really awful pictures of soldiers, especially those from the Civil War, who were given mercury pills and had mercury applied to wounds and things who just had horrific side effects. But coming after trepanation, which is a medical procedure, or saving foreskin, again, it's not medicine specifically, but it's a procedure that's done to the body in controlled conditions that are, again, like medicine adjacent. Um, the mention of the thirst pebble puts it into this context even further, and it makes it uncomfortable. 
And yeah. it also makes the name a tool, sort of, because the yeah. pebble is something that's used to an end. We got to right. read it again. All right. The Moment I Saw a Pelican Devour by Paige Lewis. The Moment I Saw a Pelican Devour a Seagull, Wings Swallowing Wings, I learned that a miracle is anything that God forgot to forbid. So when you tell me that saints are splintered into bone bits smaller than the freckles on your wrist, and that each speck is sold to the rich, I know to marvel at this, and not the fact that these same saints are still wholly intact and fresh-faced in their plexiglass tomb displays. We wholly our own fragments when we can. Trepanation patients wear their skull spirals as amulets. Mothers frame the dried foreskin of their firstborn. And I've seen you swirl my name on your tongue like a thirst pebble. Still, I try to hold on to nothing for fear of being crushed by what can be taken, because sometimes not even our mouths belong to us. Listen, in the early 1920s, women were paid to paint radium onto watch dials so that men wouldn't have to ask the time in dark alleys. They were told it was safe, told to lick their brushes into sharp points. These women painted their nails, their faces, and judged whose skin shined brightest. They coated their teeth so their boyfriends could see their bites when the lights turned down. The miracle here is not that these women swallowed light. It's that when their skin dissolved and their jaws fell off, the Radium Corporation claimed they all died from syphilis. It's that you're more interested in telling me about the dull slivers of dead saints, while these women's bones are glowing beneath our feet. Hey everybody, this is Jack again. Thank you so much for listening. This is the part of the show where we tell you all the different ways you can get in touch with us because we love to hear from you. If you have ideas for future episodes, comments on this or any of our past episodes, different readings of poems than the ones that we offered, we want to hear it. Uh, the fastest and easiest way to get in touch with us is on Twitter. The show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Hot Sauce Boxed. You can also get in touch with us via email if you have lengthier thoughts. Our email address is CloseTalkingPoetry at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash CloseTalking. And of course, the very best way to stay up to date on the latest Close Talking happenings is to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Uh, we're also available in addition to iTunes on Stitcher and SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again next time.